With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 6, Episode 32. And I think it's going to be Season 6, Episode 32. So we're actually, Mike and I are in the studio. This is the one week out of this month that we're both together. But yeah, so anyway, we're recording this actually on the 12th of March. So uh, we're way ahead of time and we're really just trying to do some pre-planning. So the day I'm recording this, you'll probably tell from some context, uh, we are two days after episode one of the HBO documentary aired uh, on Anand Syed's case, and two days before that, we got the ruling that Anand's conviction had been reinstated. So I reached out to our good friend Colin Miller from the Undisclosed podcast and asked him if he would come on and talk a little bit about the docuseries, and more importantly, give us a better legal breakdown of what happened with the ruling in Adnan's case. So, without too much further ado, we're going to get right into our interview with Colin Miller. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm joined today via Skype by the host of, one of the hosts of the Undisclosed Podcast, and also the author of the Evidence Prop blog, Mr. Colin Miller. How are you doing today, Colin? Good, Bob. How are you? Doing really well. And I've also got, he doesn't talk much, but sitting in the room with me is our producer and my co-host, Mike. Hey, how's it going? Hey. Colin, the reason I brought you on, for the most part, was, and as I mentioned to you before we got on, I'm kind of doing this in a, in a time warp because we're recording this much earlier than it's going to drop. So right now, when we're recording this, Everything's still pretty fresh in regards to Adnan Syed's new ruling in the highest court in Maryland where they have reinstated his conviction. So I'm going to see if you can break that down for me and the audience and kind of explain what happened and what happens next. Uh, but before we get into that stuff, I want to talk to you a little bit about the, uh, the new HBO docuseries, Adnan Syed, Innocent or Guilty. Yeah. 
what was your because you were involved as as a consultant? I, I heard on Undisclosed, or what was your role in the the docu series? Yeah, my role was as a consultant, and so I talked to them about certain pieces of evidence, such as the lividity evidence, the discovery of Hayes' vehicle, put them in contact with some witnesses, and so had that sort of interaction with them as they were putting the series together. Okay, and now have you seen, I know you, you, you get a little bit of a heads up on the episodes before the rest of us do, how many of the episodes have you seen at this point? So I've watched two. We're, we're, uh, I'm sort of watching the episodes one at a time before I record each episode, so I'm not confusing what I've seen and haven't seen. And so I've seen two of the four episodes so far. Your patience is incredible, because ta- I've, <laughs> I've spoken to a few other people that are, I was talking to Rabia yesterday, because you guys have access to all the first three, right? First three, yeah. The fourth, I think they're probably still putting together, maybe waiting on seeing whether some things come together. That's I, I have to say, I'm thoroughly impressed that you're able to sit on that third episode and not watch it yet. Yeah, well, it's, uh, patience can be a virtue, and you know, I can wait a few weeks. Sure. So you've seen the first two. I have not seen the second one because it hasn't aired yet. But you can go ahead and spoil things for me if you want to, and what happened in the second one. But to begin with, like, what are you so far from what you've seen so far? What are you, what are your thoughts and impressions? Because you're a big you're a big film buff, right? Yeah, definitely. So I'm a fan of Amy Berg's films, including West of Memphis, and she's an expert at the craft of putting things together with music, quality images, having that emotional thrust. And so, I mean, it's a much more emotional experience for me than listening to Serial or really any other podcast I've listened to. You can see the actual faces of the people involved, Anand's family, their friends from high school. And so that has a big impact beyond just sort of hearing the spoken word. Yeah, I I was really impressed with the first episode, the one I saw, in how much of a light they shined onto Hay. Because, you know, with the work you guys did on Undisclosed and the work I've done with, with Truth and Justice and back in the day, the Serial Dynasty, you know, you try to focus so much on the case. I, I think without meaning to do so, we, we kind of lose sight of Hay a little bit and all that. And I thought they did a really, really good job of really showcasing who Hay was as a person. Yeah, and I know in some of the interviews I've seen with Amy Berg, she says that that was a point of emphasis for them and getting the family friend on and the high school friends and going through and having her diary excerpts. I think all of that's effective in fleshing her out as a full human being. And I, and I really like the production, the way they, they peppered that in. or I, I think I guess it was the other way around, where the first episode was about Hay herself, but then they, they still were able to pepper in some some new elements of the case that a lot of us haven't heard of heard about for before. So it's still it really it kind of taps into your emotional centers and your cognitive centers all at the same time. Yeah, I, mean, I think they did a really good job for people who have either seen serial or have not and had no exposure to the case before this. It's a good entryway for someone who has no prior knowledge of the case. But even if you did, as you say, they sort of flesh things out and they add some details and some nuance and contours that you weren't aware of. Now, were you? I know you. So you're you're viewing the episodes as you guys are talking about them on Undisclosed. So I take it to mean that you probably don't know what's coming in a lot of these episodes yet. Have you have you not been that involved enough where you kind of have an idea of where it's going? Well, I know a lot of the things that they explored and investigated. So I have, based upon what they're sort of setting up in these first two episodes, some expectations of what will air. And again, I know a lot of the things they investigated. I'm not sure what's on the cutting room floor versus making the final episodes, but I, I think I have a pretty decent idea of where it's going to head. Nice. And do you, was there anything in the first episode that 
uh, was new to you or was was kind of shocking to you to hear? Yeah, I mean, by far the most shocking thing for me was Debbie discussing how she, in fact, did have this seven-hour phone call with Don that wasn't a typo. And beyond that, that Don was making, according to Debbie, romantic advances on her, and it progressed a little bit before she finally had to sort of put the brakes on it. Yeah, that was that was pretty shocking for me to hear, too. And, you know, I actually got a chance to meet Debbie. Um, I was on a TV show on with Nancy, the Grace versus Abrams show last year, and Debbie was one of the guests that was on with me. And it was interesting because I, I, I asked her a little. I was really interested in the um, the police note that says, Debbie was assaulted by the new boyfriend. Does does that play out at all in episode two, or is that never mentioned from what you've seen so far? It's not in episode two, and I know in the first episode she says that she kind of blacks out and doesn't really remember exactly what happened afterwards. So I don't know whether that's going to come up later. It's not something that I've discussed with the producers, so I don't know if that's the end of it in episode one or if we'll see more about that in three or four. That note's been driving me crazy for three and a half years now, and and. I thought I finally had my opportunity last, I think it was February when I was in the studio out in New York with her. And I asked her, I actually asked her about it and said, you know, did, what about this note? It says you were assaulted by the new boyfriend. And she just said, I don't know. I don't recall ever saying that. And so that was the, the end of it. Yeah. And that gets that, you know, she, on the one hand, makes the point about having a photographic memory. And on the other hand, she says that this interaction with Don, it sort of goes, blank her head at a moment so it's kind of tough to make out what exactly she's trying to convey there yeah i mean i mean what what was your take on or if you don't want to get into it you don't have to but i I was curious as you as someone who's investigated the case and you're watching some of that kind of play out that because i'm I'm like you that was that was pretty shocking to hear that there was a, a a relationship of some kind between debbie and don and then I'm a little confused on the timeline because we know that the seven and a half hour or the seven hour phone conversation that happened while Hay was missing, right? That was before she was found. Correct. Because she says she reaches out because she thought that Don was hiding her. So it's clearly at that point when Hay has not been discovered and we're not sure if she's just missing or if she's been killed and right. The initial contact there where she surreptitiously emails him and makes the phone call. That's when it's missing. And then when they eventually meet up, she said spring break on the episode. So that would be clearly after Hayes' body has been discovered. Okay, yeah, I guess I didn't catch that that spring break context in there. You know, and the other thing was, you know, it's been so long ago, and you know, because you guys do the same thing, uh, you know, you, you start to stack up cases you're looking into. Your For me, my, my memory of these other cases starts to fade quite a bit. It seemed to me or felt to me like it was new information that, that Hay had had allegedly experienced some sort of sexual abuse. Correct. That is brand new information. That's something where I hadn't heard about that until the episode premiered. That's not something that I had discussed with the producers at all. I'm not sure that Susan or Rabia, maybe Rabia, but I feel like when we recorded our episode that this was new information to them too. Right. And and I didn't catch because it kind of, it was kind of in the aftermath of after I heard it, I kind of, you know, did a double take. But what was the original source? I saw I saw that Debbie mentioned that Hay had mentioned it to her, but I didn't catch where the original source to the producers came from. I'm not sure, yeah, how it came to them. I think on the episode, both Debbie and Adnan mention it, and I'm not sure whether either of them are the original source or whether there's another source that wasn't mentioned, but I think those two on the episode discuss it. Okay, yeah, th- yeah that's right. It was Adnan mentioned it too. 
So maybe that was the original source, and then Debbie confirmed it. I wanted to ask you what you, because I, I have my own thoughts on it. But what did you think about the the use of animation to sort of bring hay to life? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, obviously she's not here to speak for herself. And so it's either we have no visual representation of Hay, we have a recreation where you have sort of stand-ins, or you do something like an animation. And I think, as you were mentioning before, I think they did it in a way that was respectful, I think kind of reflected who Hay was as a person, her own use of drawings. And in fact, like she drew the dress that they then incorporated into the animation. So. Yeah, I think that they did it in an effective way where they were portraying her on screen. And I think better than if they were going to have sort of an actor who was portraying her in a recreation. I feel the same way. I thought it was such a a creative and brilliant move because that's kind of what I was expecting. You know, when you could tell early on that they were really shining a light on Hay. So I I was thinking either they're going to move past this or they're going to do some recreations, which I'm, I'm usually not a big fan of. But I thought it was very, very well done, and I liked where they went with it because you know they, they had to go either we're going to try to make this look as real as possible, and it's never going to look right, and instead they kind of went more almost cartoony with it, um, not in a disrespectful way, but to just clearly show they're not trying to make it look exactly like Hay, but they're they're giving you a feel for who she is, and I like the way they mix it in with the animations too, with the you know the, her diary, you know the way they they kind of brought the diary to life even. Yeah, yeah, and I thought it was tastefully and respectfully done. And I think you know, a lot of the reviewers in talking about it have mentioned that, where this is shining the light on Hay and bringing that attention to her, which I think is a good thing. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus so what about episode two? Now, I haven't seen it yet, but um, I've been told that episode two makes a shift, really starts to dig into the investigation. What, what can you tell me about episode two? What did, you, what did you like or not like or any thoughts you have on the second episode? Yes, yeah, so episode two, you know, there's a lot of grounds that it covers. It goes into Jay's interrogation and sort of his shifting story. They bring his friend Chris on, who you might remember from Serial, is the one who said that Jay called from the pool hall and... The trunk pop took place in the parking lot of the pool hall. They talked to Jennifer Pusateri and Christina Vincent and start going into their stories. They get uh, an expert in grass and they go to the scene in Baltimore City where Hayes' car is allegedly dormant for six weeks. And so they sort of start questioning that. So there's really a lot of ground it covers. Uh, they talk to Jay's, the mother of Jay's child and her abuse allegations against him so 
it's it's a lot of different things. They sort of are jumping around and touching upon various aspects of the case. It sounds like it's much more investigative once we move into the second episode. Yeah, right. The first episode is, you know, again, it's about sort of introducing the story and this relationship between Adnan and Hay and reintroducing some of the key players. And then the yeah, episode two starts really digging into a lot of the details in the case. Okay. And do you have any idea where uh, they're going with season or with episode three? Yeah, well, again, uh, based upon, you know, talking with them, I'm not sure if it'll be episode three or episode four, but you can see in episode two, they're laying the groundwork for, well, at, you know, quite blatantly, at the end of the episode, it's a phone call between the wife of Jay's child and him, and that's going to have a shocking revelation. They're sort of setting things up about how Jen and Christina Vincent remember that it was January 13th, and that's setting up another key revelation. So there's a lot that's coming in three and four that this is sort of setting up. Okay, and then I've been told, and by told, I've been reading your Twitter uh, that you actually came up with some kind of what everyone's calling a bombshell. Any any clues as to what that's going to be about? Well, the bombshell, I, I sort of talked in elliptical terms with the team about this. This is something, the bombshell, that's been around for years. And it's tough because it kind of deals with some ethical issues, which is why I can't completely disclose it and didn't disclose it to the team. So I'm not sure if it's going to be addressed in the episode, but with the Court of Appeals now denying relief, this might very well be something that finds its way into a subsequent appeal in this case. Great. And so, and that's as of when this drops, we're two days away from episode four. And as, as a fan of Amy Berg's work myself, I can't wait to see episode four because I, you know, you know, there's going to be some massive revelations that are going to knock everyone's socks off. And I imagine that that whatever you've discovered will be a, will be a big part of that. Yeah, and as of as of today, recording run, you know, March twelfth, right now, there's a big lead that might pan out, and they've sort of been tracking it down yesterday and today, and we're hoping that it's going to pan out, and that you know, if it does pan out, it's going to be probably part of episode four. Right. That's a, so they're still working on a, a final cut of four. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I'm not entirely sure what episode four is, but yeah, I mean, based upon this investigation they're doing now and how frantic they are in trying to make sure they track it down, yeah, I, I assume that episode four is not completed and there's still some stuff that could go in. Oh, that's awesome. Because I'm sure as the, as the just like as works on, on both of our podcasts, as you start to draw viewers in and increase the amount of eyes and ears on the case, I'm sure that they're more and more likely to have more tips come in as things move along. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's kind of what this is as a result of episode one, a new lead that's sort of cropped up. So in re- in regards to the information you uncovered, if it ends up not making the cut for the, the docuseries, is that something that you'll release publicly or do you think that's something that'll have to be kept back and used for a court? Well, that's the question. There's sort of, as we'll discuss in a minute, there's various different appellate routes that it not now has after the court's denied him relief. And so, yeah, this could fit well in one type of appeal. So we'll kind of have to see exactly how this progresses the next few months and even years to see evidence that I found, that Susan's found, that Ravi has found, that this team has found, how to use that in the most effective way to now get it on a new trial. Well, I think that's a good place to transition in then to the order that came down last Friday. Now it's been a few weeks and when, when the episode's airing, but so the court gave a ruling. It was a four to three decision to overturn Judge Welsh's ruling, uh, which effectively reinstates Ednan's conviction. So can, can you talk a little bit about the ruling? I know I was I was talking to Rabia 
the other day, and she said that you know there was it was full of both factual and legal inconsistencies. There's there's a whole lot going on with that ruling itself. So could you, you just kind of break it down for us in in evidence prof speak? Yeah, so there were two grounds for this appeal. The first was that Adnan received ineffective assistance of counsel based upon Christina Gutierrez's failure to contact alibi witness Asia McLean. Six of the seven judges on the Court of Appeals of Maryland found what's known as deficient performance. That's one of the two prongs of ineffective assistance. It means that constitutionally, she failed as a lawyer. She was unreasonable in that failure to contact this alibi witness who had written these letters to Adnan soon after he became incarcerated. The problem for Adnan is then this majority, the four-judge majority, finds even though that was deficient performance, it's not prejudicial. It doesn't undermine our confidence in the jury's verdict. And what they basically do is they go back to Judge Welch's original ruling because Judge Welch found the same thing. He found a new trial based upon the cell tower evidence. And what they say is, we agree with Judge Welch, the crux of the state's case is not the actual murder or the murder timeline. The state actually presented this weak and inconsistent theory about when Hay was killed. And they also, like Judge Welch, note there are a lot of problems with the state's case, a lot of inconsistencies, a lot of what Jay says is not backed up by the cell tower pings, et cetera. They agree with Judge Welch, though, the crux, the heart of the state's case is basically the Lincoln Park pings, because they say the Lincoln Park pings, that corroborates Jay's story about the burial in Lincoln Park at about 7 o'clock p.m., Jennifer Pusateri says, I make this call to a non-cell phone. That's the 709 and 716 calls. And of course, we have the AT&T records that place this with the cell tower that covers, among other areas, Lincoln Park. And so that's why four judges rule against him. They find that that was the crux of the state's case, and Asia doesn't undermine that. Now, as I said, there's two claims here. The other claim is that Christina Gutierrez was ineffective. She failed to use this AT&T disclaimer that says incoming calls are not reliable for determining location status. Now, again, that's what Judge Welch found was both deficient performance and prejudicial, and that's the reason he granted him a new trial. And he found that Adnan had not waived this issue. So in other words, even though his attorney did not include it in his first post-conviction petition, Judge Welch finds Adnan did not knowingly and intelligently waive this issue. He hears the issue. Of course, we have five days of testimony. The cell tower experts And Judge Welch concludes this completely destroys the crux of the state's case. This cell tower disclaimer could have been used. Now, the Court of Appeals in Maryland finds the issue was waived. They don't change the substance of the ruling. They don't find that Judge Welch was substantively wrong. They simply say, we can't consider this issue. And so it's sort of this weird ruling where the court is saying, you don't get a new trial because the heart of the state's case is the cell tower pings. We know the lower court found this document would have destroyed them at trial. But procedurally, we can't hear this because the issue is waived. Is it way? Is there a time limit on it? Is it time barred, or was it because you know you get one bite at the apple, so to speak? And when he filed his original appeal, it wasn't included, and that waived it right there. Yeah, and so basically, the way this works is that you have ten years after your conviction to file your post-conviction review petition, and about nine years after his conviction. Adnan filed this, his attorney filed it, and did not include the cell tower claim. And basically, Maryland has this case, Curtis versus State, that says for fundamental rights, including the right to counsel, you have to knowingly and intelligently waive those rights. And what Judge Welch had found is Adnan didn't knowingly and intelligently waive this. He didn't finish high school. He was arrested before he finished. This is a complex, complicated issue. 
and therefore he didn't knowingly and intelligently waive it, and therefore he can bring this claim now. Whereas the Court of Appeals in Maryland says that logic only applies for entirely new claims. So imagine that in his first petition, Adnan claimed a Brady violation and didn't claim any ineffective assistance of counsel. The court would have found, you can now bring that. You haven't waived that issue. But the way that they interpret the Curtis uh, case is to say, if you brought a first claim of ineffective assistance of counsel, and now you're claiming a different reason, you first claim the alibi witness, and now you're claiming the cell tower records, that's not covered by Curtis versus State, which is why Adnan has waived this issue. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So it sounds like it's essentially, if you're claiming your lawyer did a terrible job for X, Y, and Z reasons, you can't then continually pile on more reasons why the lawyer did a bad job. Exactly. That's exactly what the court finds. Okay. And so what recourse do we have from here? I, I had, you know, my initial thought when I first saw it, I, I was actually mid-recording uh, when I got the news and was, it was just trying to real quickly figure out what was happening. Uh, my, my initial thought was, I guess all that's left is then to appeal up to the federal courts um, but in reading your blog, it seems like there's there's some other options still out there. Yes, the first option is within 30 days after the court's ruling, you can file what's known as a motion for reconsideration. That's asking the Court of Appeals of Maryland to reconsider their opinion, and you can sort of proffer all sorts of reasons. It's exceedingly unlikely to be a winning argument because the court's not going to likely admit that it's wrong. So that's probably a losing argument. After that, you can file a petition for writ of certiorari with the U.S. Supreme Court asking them to hear the case. Supreme Court basically takes less than 1% of those petitions. They're exceedingly unlikely to hear the case. Uh, But then after that, there's this pretty terrific option, and it seems like Justin is pretty game to do this, and that is you file a petition to reopen the post-conviction proceeding, and the ground is ineffective assistance to post-conviction counsel. And that's been recognized in Maryland as a ground free opening. And basically the claim here is this, you know, we had a five-day hearing. <laughs> After that five-day hearing, Judge Welch finds you have a completely winning argument on ineffective assistance of counsel based upon the AT&T disclaimer. And in fact, this most recent opinion by the Court of Appeals of Maryland confirms that and says the crux of the state's case is the Lincoln Park pings, which deal with incoming calls. And so the argument here would be to say, Adnan received ineffective assistance of post-conviction counsel by not including the cell tower claim in his first PCR petition. If it had been included, he would have won. Our evidence that he would have won is we had this five-day hearing and a ruling by the judge that this is a winning issue. Yeah, and that seems to have been kind of confirmed by the, the higher court, too. I mean, it doesn't seem like anybody's arguing that. It's just procedural. Yeah. And this was a big part of why I predicted Adnan was going to win at the Court of Appeals in Maryland. I ended up being wrong. I acknowledge that I was incorrect on that and I had an incorrect prediction. But the reason I made that prediction is, in effect, what the Court of Appeals in Maryland just said is, we'll see you in a few years. Because they're basically not disturbing Judge Welch's finding that this is ineffective assistance in the cell claim. 
In fact, they strengthen it by saying the crux of the state's case is the Lincoln Park pings. And so, yeah, Adnan, of course, should be able to reopen this hearing. And it's tough to see the result going against him this time. But then the issue is we can't just jump right back into that ineffective assistance of post-conviction counsel. He has to go through these other steps first, right? Does he have to do the reconsideration or can he go right to the federal? Yeah, I mean, I, tomorrow he could go right to this motion to reopen. Now you want to sort of use all your opportunities. So it's likely he's going to have the motion for reconsideration in Maryland court and then have the cert petition to the Supreme Court and then file to reopen. But technically he could bypass options one and two and just go right to reopen based upon the cell tower issue. But then he would he would waive based on the chances that one of those might have worked out. Correct. Which is why, yeah, I mean, you know, you want to use all your opportunities, which is why I imagine, I'm not sure, but I imagine they'll go through those two, first two options first. So I'm actually unfamiliar completely with ineffective of post-conviction counsel. I know if you, if you win a post or uh, ineffective assistance of counsel claim, then your conviction is vacated and you get a new trial. What happens if you win an ineffective assistance of post-conviction counsel? You get a new trial. And so basically, the way it works is you have to prove two things. You have to prove, one, I had a winning claim of ineffective assistance of trial counsel. Again, in this case, Judge Welch has already found that. He's found there was ineffective assistance in failure to use the AT&T disclaimer at trial to cross-examine the state cell tower expert. And then second, you have to prove my post-conviction counsel was ineffective by failing to properly present this to the court in a way that I would get relief. And we know we have that now because the court of appeals has found your post-conviction counsel didn't include this in your first PCR petition, and therefore it's waived and you're not allowed to raise that. And what's important is Judge Welch made some pretty key factual findings. Again, he said, this is a case where this is a complex issue. Adnan, who didn't even finish high school before he was arrested, wouldn't grasp it himself. And so those are pretty strong factual findings to show, you know, this is something that could have and should have been raised in his first PCR petition. And it should have been raised by his lawyer because he effectively said in that ruling that he wouldn't expect Ednan to have had this knowledge, but his lawyer should have. Correct. Yeah. And there's a case out of the Supreme Court of Nevada that I cited in my blog, which is basically the exact same facts as Ednan's case. And in fact, it was cited by the court in Maryland in, there's a case called Stovall that recognizes this right to effective post-conviction counsel. So yeah, I think it's pretty straightforward that he's going to win on this, but it's going to take a few years now. And that's the real unfortunate part is this could have been nipped in the bud now. And you know now it's going to be thousands of dollars, an extra year, two or three. And I still think he has a great shot of winning. It just sort of pushes the ball back further. So who does he file that claim with? Would, it, would, that, would that be claimed, the motion to reopen based on the post-conviction counsel? Would that go back to Judge Welsh, or does that go to the Court of Special Appeals? It would go to the circuit court, which is Judge Welch. So Judge Welch is retired now, but he would file it with Judge Welch. And my understanding in talking with Maryland's appellate attorneys is typically it would be heard by Judge Welch, his successor, and then in rare circumstances, someone else. But with Judge Welch having already had these five days of post-conviction hearing and hearing the cell tower evidence, I imagine assuming he's game, he's going to hear the case again. Okay, and then does that then start the uh, the ball of appeals rolling again, where if he does rule that there was ineffective assistance of post-conviction counsel, can the state then appeal that up and then appeal that up again? They could try. And, you know, 
in most cases, the Court of Special Appeals and then the Court of Appeals do not allow an appeal by the losing party. They did, obviously, with the Asia issue, but part of that was they had remanded it back down, and so they maybe felt an obligation to take it again. I think there's a decent chance that if Adnan wins on the cell terror claim in circuit court, the higher appellate courts might not even hear the case, and they might just allow that verdict to stand. So they don't have to hear an appeal. The state decides to appeal that ruling. Correct. So in any case, you know, we had Adnan's conviction was thrown out in 2016. We're 2019 now, so the the wheels of justice in Maryland don't turn any faster than they do anywhere else, it seems like. So, I mean, this this is going to be years at this point. It could be, but it also might not be. So I can imagine a scenario where Adnan files this motion to reopen. Again, this would probably be around 60, 90, 120 days from now after we've sort of had the, the motion for reconsideration and the cert petition. I could imagine a scenario where he files that. Judge Welch says, oh, well, of course, I already found this is a winning issue. Uh, I've just reaffirmed my holding, and I granted on a new trial. Court of Special Appeals doesn't agree to hear the appeal, and we're done. Adnan gets the new trial. I could also imagine a scenario where it's filed, where either Judge Welch or whoever's hearing the case says, I want more hearings. I'm going to schedule additional testimony and evidence. They take a while to have the ruling. Court of Special Appeals does agree to hear the appeal. Court of Appeals agrees to hear it. And again, we could be two, three years out before we have a final ruling. So it could be very quick, could be very long. Okay. And then the last question I have on that is, there's still investigation happening. The Anon's legal team has investigators, you and Susan and Rabia, myself, people are still out working on this case. What could be done if, if someone turns up new evidence that proves, new, new un, you know, previously undiscovered evidence? that proves his innocence or proves someone else's guilt, which would in effect prove his innocence. What could be done with that? Yes, there's a mechanism in Maryland. It's known as a petition for writ of actual innocence. And what that means is without having to make any other claim like a Brady violation or ineffective assistance of counsel, if you have evidence that proves an individual's innocence, you can file for this writ. And in Maryland court, the court can then throw out the conviction. There's also a way in federal court, it's known as sort of the schlup gateway, where if you have evidence of actual innocence, that can allow you to then appeal a state court's ruling. And so one option here that exists, if this motion to reopen fails, is it non could claim in federal court, the Maryland courts made a mistake in finding that Asia wouldn't have made a difference. And the way we're getting you to hear that issue is we have other evidence that proves his innocence. And so you use that evidence of innocence not directly to prove that his conviction is bad, but sort of as a gateway to get these state issues into federal court. Okay. So there's, there are still, this isn't over. There, there are still other options out there. Yeah. I mean, I've described this as a speed bump on my blog. I'm fully convinced that at the end of the day, Adnan still gets a new trial and has a winning argument, a really solid winning argument. So yeah, for, for, for listeners, I would not at all think that this is the end of the road. There's really solid reason to believe Adnan's still getting a new trial. All right. Well, now we've heard it directly from Colin Miller, who is a man that I have an incredible amount of respect for. Colin is always always seems to be the most level-headed one in the room. 
and in most cases, the the by far the most educated. And so I, I really enjoyed my discussion with Colin. I hope you guys did too. And I right now I'm I'm really feeling a much brighter glimmer of hope than I had la- for me last week for you guys three weeks ago when we got the news about Adnan's conviction. So with all that being said, I think we're going to go ahead and close things out. We've still got a lot of work to do before I hit the road again. And again, I want to thank all of you guys for putting up with our hectic schedule. You know, we've, we've been dealing with a lot in the fact that over the last several weeks, I mean, I'm just guessing because, again, we recorded this two and a half weeks before you're going to hear it. And just knowing what's all in the works right now, um, I'm just guessing the next couple of weeks are going to be a little crazy. We have uh, we have the, the Melgar case that we're still working through, and we've got some new leads coming in there that we're trying to work through while I'm traveling. We have uh, the HBO docuseries happening in real time where we're getting new revelations, and that's actually bringing in new leads to not only myself and the undisclosed team and the investigators in the case. So I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's happened between when I recorded this and when you're hearing it and whether we're going to be or have been continuing on through uh, our, our planned schedule with the Melgar case or if we've derailed since then. But hopefully it's went well, and hopefully all of you are enjoying what we're putting out and getting something out of it. And And I have to believe that all of you enjoyed Colin's interview because Colin Miller just always always has uh, great information and really helps us to understand what's happening. So with all that being said, for the second time, I'm going to close this out again. So thank you guys for listening. Yeah, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. 
But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. You miss me, Mike? I sure did, Bob. You sure did. He got lots of work done, though, while I was gone. Oh, yeah. But he gave me a huge hug when I got back into the office. That's right. <laughs> Let that slide. Okay. So thank you guys for listening. What am I supposed to say? That was, what are you doing? I don't know. Like, hey. <laughs> I was thinking, of, yeah, thanks, everybody. We'll see sure, you. I got you. Yeah, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. And then that's it in 10 seconds. <laughs> Credits that got super weird, but uh, you got me, you got me good. <laughs> we is on the struggle bus right now, <laughs> just trying to keep up right now. And uh, yeah, you guys, you guys really with your your donations really make things, um, you make things a lot easier. At least make it so we can afford to chase down all these leads uh, that cause us to be gone all the time. You've seen the film, you know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com.